Yeah, thank you guys. We're really glad you're here this morning, and uh, it's a nice uh, summer Sunday, and you've chosen to carve out a couple hours to be here with us, or three or four, whatever it's going to take, and I appreciate you being here this morning. Uh, We've been in this teaching series here for these last few weeks that we're calling Big, Hairy, Audacious Questions. And if you're like me, you've had some big, hairy, audacious questions about the Christian faith at some point in your journey. And sometimes, just about the time you get one of your big questions answered, another comes right along behind it to take its place. That's okay. Don't be freaked out by that. We welcome that. I think God's okay with that. I think He's big enough to handle your biggest questions. If you are a skeptical person, or even if you would say you're at the very least a little skeptical about a few things about the Christian faith, we've been hoping you would show up. Or if you found yourself as a believer, you found yourself in conversations, uh, or maybe you go looking for conversations because you're that kind of an annoying person. You go looking for these conversations with friends and family members and coworkers who are skeptics, who have all kinds of really big questions that have kept them at arm's length from Christianity, and you want to be better equipped to argue, I mean, engage them uh, in, I'm really glad you're here too. So what we did is a few weeks ago, uh, I put out an email, I posted it on Facebook, we had a link on our website where we wanted you to send us your biggest, most difficult questions about the Christian faith. And we wanted to hear the questions uh, that you've wrestled with at some point in your journey, maybe in the present. And then we wanted to hear Uh, the questions that you're hearing from your skeptical, unbelieving, unchurched friends and family and coworkers, And you responded to that, which was great. You have chosen the topics for this series. You sent in nearly 40 questions. Um, And these aren't softball questions to make the pastor look smart, as I'm about to demonstrate. Uh, and, and, And so we've got about 40 questions that all fit into probably... 14 or 15 categories, and I don't think we're even going to get to all the categories. Um, We'll just kind of do this as long as we can kind of hold everybody's interest. These are some of the big questions, the most difficult questions that you wrestle with as followers of Jesus or questions that the unbelieving people in your life wrestle with. And maybe, maybe they like to bring this stuff up in conversations with you to validate their reasons for being skeptical of the Christian faith. Here's the deal. These aren't new questions. These are questions that people have uh, been wrestling with for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years. They're questions that have left a lot of people skeptical. And some of you uh, Christians, you know, you've decided that Jesus is your Savior, and you're good with that, and certain parts of the Bible you're good with, but you're still skeptical when it comes to a few specific issues about your faith. Maybe you're not a Christian, because I don't know everybody in the room, or maybe you have a friend who says, no, I can't be a Christian until you answer this question for me, or until you answer these questions for me. So we've taken these questions that you've submitted, and maybe a couple of my own, and we've put together this series called Big, Hairy, Audacious Questions. And so we're in part three today. So far, we've talked about, can I really trust the Bible? That was part one. Uh, Then in part two, we asked, how can Jesus be the only way to God? Which is a great question. And these, uh, the CDs from the messages are available on the table in the lobby. There also, there's an audio uh, player on our website where you can listen right there. You can download it to listen later. You can also download, download notes from the messages, or you can subscribe to our podcast and just it'll automatically show up uh, on your mobile device. So uh, there's no reason to miss any of these. So today, we're, gonna, we're going to a real difficult question, and it's this. I try to think, how can I segue into this? How can I kind of tiptoe into this? Maybe kind of sneak in the back door so nobody knows we're here. But I'm just going to kind of burst the doors open, and here's the big question. Question number three. Big, hairy question. We call them B-hacks. In three weeks, we've, we've kind of adopted our whole weird subculture here around big, hairy, audacious questions. So B-hack number three is how can a loving God send people to hell? Ever thought about... That was it. Was that your question? No, no. Uh, anybody ever thought about this at all? This thought ever crossed your mind and you thought, yeah, whatever. You know, I never thought about it. I don't have an answer. It's okay with me. Or maybe you've wrestled with this. This is a hard one. You know, um, I preached my first sermon in the spring of 1982. Do the math. I was four. I was actually 13. I was 13 years old. And uh, preached my first little mini sermon. Uh, 
and uh, so that was a long time ago. And then uh, in, uh, in, when I was in college, I spoke every week at a nursing home, so I kind of got into the speaking mode. Then I jumped into a full-time youth ministry position where I was speaking to teenagers all the time, little sermonettes. And then occasionally they would let me preach in big church. On Sunday night, of course, not the big Sunday morning thing, but Sunday night. And so every six weeks or so I got to do that. And then eventually I moved up to the big stage. And then I've been doing, doing this for uh, 18 years. And um, I've preached in a lot of settings to a lot of different groups of people, a lot of different sizes. And I've never, I don't think, ever preached a sermon where the topic was hell. Um, this is a hard one. How can a loving God send people to hell? So here's what I thought I would do. That I've got a lot going on in my life right now. I managed to stay busy. I've been preaching every other week for a long time. I've got other things I try to squeeze into my life, and I would be happy to just give you the mic. I'll take it off. It's not custom fit for me, and give you the mic to cover this topic today if anybody would be willing to just preach this message today and answer this question once and for all. Yeah, I knew you would. I didn't see you back there. Uh, <laughs> you start your own podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, here's the deal. This is hard stuff. We're going to see where it takes us this morning, okay? Of all the subjects that I've got planned for this, um, as I've kind of got it mapped out based on the questions you sent in, this is the one that has me the least emotionally satisfied. So I'm just going to lay that out there to start with this morning, okay? I know what I plan to say, and when I'm done in 40 minutes or so, uh, I'm still not going to be done with my wrestling with this. Not that most of these questions are solvable, really, because they're questions, these are questions that people have had for hundreds and hundreds of years since the beginning of Christianity, or maybe even since the beginning of time, people have wrestled with some of these questions. So we're going to look at some scripture this morning. We're going to look what the Bible has to say about this subject and what the Bible has to say about a couple of issues about eternity, and we'll apply some logic, and we'll see if that helps. And again, the goal of the series is not to change your mind, although some of you may change your mind about some of these questions. At a minimum, I hope that what we'll do is we will open your mind. And in opening our minds, we may uh, have some of our questions satisfied at some level, and we may become better equipped to help others answer the very same questions. Because I don't believe you should come to church and be expected to check your brain at the door. I think that's a dangerous way to approach church and faith and God. There are very intelligent people in the world who have landed on the side of faith, some of them, of course, are in this room, super intelligent people. And some very intelligent people don't land on the side of faith, all right? I think this is an opportunity for those of us who call ourselves Christians to maybe think differently about some of these issues and to realize that there is logic that moves in both directions. There are arguments that lean both ways. God wants us to engage our minds as well as our hearts and our souls, and I hope that that's what we're able to do in this series. The question, this question of hell is a question for Christians and non-Christians. Some people wonder, is there really a heaven and is there really a hell, or when you die, are you just no more? Some people would say that if there's a heaven, there must be a hell because that's how things work in the great cosmic scale. These are they're great questions, and it's not that uncommon, but one of the things we need to know is if this is your big question, if you've wrestled with this, we need to recognize that we are the first generation of people in human history where a significant percentage of people actually believe that nothing happens after you die. You can study lots of cultures, historically, anthropologically. You will discover that almost every culture has believed that there is something after this life, something that has to do with eternity. All the world religions have something to say about eternity. So if you have a friend who thinks, well, we just die and that's it, we just need to know that this is a fairly new thought, historically. And you, you want to test assumptions behind new thoughts and new ideas. Have you ever wondered, well, what about people who've never heard of Jesus? Because last time we talked about what if, how can Jesus be the only way to God? What about people that have never heard of Jesus? And if now we're talking about hell, do they go to hell? They still go to hell? How is that fair? That's an audacious question. Have you ever wondered how can a loving God send people to hell? What if you're a decent moral person and you were born into a culture where you never had an opportunity to hear about the God of the Bible and his love for you and about Jesus? Is, that, is it fair that God sends you to hell? 
So again, not many of us really want to tackle this. And when I saw this question come through, I'm like, I don't really want to spend a whole morning on this. But you know, this is a big question. So we're going to try to. We've said in the series that we're going to try to answer the question with a question, which isn't always helpful, uh, but it makes it easier for me. So if the, if the question is, how can a loving God send people to hell? Here's a question in response, okay? And maybe you've never thought of it this way. What if hell is your decision to live without God? What if hell is not so much about God's decision to live without you as it is your decision to live without God? And I know, I know, I hear it. I hear it. The alarm bells are going off all over the place. I hear it. I know, I know. Because isn't God all-knowing? And doesn't he already know the future? Doesn't he transcend time and space and he's already in the future? So doesn't he already know the outcome? Um, And I know, I know. But we're not going to get into quantum physics and talk about time travel today, sorry. But uh, what, what if hell is your decision to live without God rather than God's decision to live without you? It's just a different way of thinking about it. What if you choose your future? Even given that God is sovereign and God is all-knowing and God is loving, he defines that. What if if this is actually the case? That I just want us to wrestle with this a little bit. Let's get to the the issue of other religions because we've talked about this uh, each week so far, what other religions have to say about some of these questions. Um, And I think it's a good idea to study study a little bit of what other cultures and other religions believe um, so that you can be educated in those conversations. But what about people who don't know? What about people who haven't heard? It's just not fair, we would say, that only Christians go to heaven. Only Christians who, you know, believe a certain way go to heaven. How does that work? The Bible has quite a bit to say about this. It's why we started our series with, Can I Trust the Bible? When you read the Bible, you aren't necessarily going to read passages that say, Oh, by the way, about your big question, here's the answer you've been looking for. And it's in 140 characters or less, like the the Twitter version of the Bible for your big questions. That would be great if it was all indexed that way. We could get it summarized like that. That'd be awesome. Um, Doesn't usually work that way. But if you study the Old Testament and if you read the book of Psalms, there's a lot written about the wonder of God in creation. You can read the book of Romans in the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul actually says, hey, almost every culture has asked the question, is there a God? And then Paul offers a commentary about that. He does this really early on in the book of Romans. And Jesus uh, Jesus addressed the question of what about people who do know versus people who don't know, and how does God judge that? And we could spend the whole morning on that, digging really deep into the scriptural text and context and backdrops and all that. But what I'm, I'm going to do instead is I'm going to look at a couple of key texts, and I'm going to look at the Gospel of uh, John, where Jesus is interacting with some religious leaders known as the Pharisees. And, and keep in mind, he's not in this passage, he's not confronting non-believers. We always think that the Pharisees are the bad guys, they don't believe in God. No, these are, these are religious people. He's confronting the most religious Jewish people of his time. So in a sense, it's like he's talking to those of us who've been in church all our lives, all right? We're the church people. And we believe all this stuff, and we've read the Bible several times, and we're all in. I think he's kind of talking to us. And he says, I've come to explain what God is really all about and what God, and to show you what God is like. And the interesting thing about Jesus' life, which I, I know some of you, you know, is, some of you know, you know this, but is that Jesus was rejected not by outsiders, but by insiders. It was the religious people that rejected him. It was the most religious people who got him hung on a cross. It wasn't people who didn't believe in God who got him killed. It was people who claimed to believe. It was people who claimed to be acting in God's name. It was people who said they believed in God, but they didn't believe in him. They should have, but they missed him, and he was right there. So Jesus, in a bit of uh, confrontation with, with the religious leaders, and I don't think he went looking for confrontation, but he found plenty of it with the religious leaders. This is what he has to say in John chapter 15. I'm just going to look at a verse or two real quick, and you don't have to turn there. Uh, we're going to get to our main text in a minute. But here's what he says. He's, he's talking to the religious leaders. He says, they would not be guilty. We're jumping in the middle of a thought. But they would not be guilty if I had not come and spoke to them. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. And again, he's not talking to outsiders. He's talking to very religious insiders. So look at what he's introducing. 
He's introducing the idea that those of us who've had an encounter with Jesus suddenly have a different standard applied to us. Well, if I hadn't told you, you wouldn't be guilty. But now that you've had the opportunity to see it, hear it for yourself, uh, now there's a responsibility and there's an accountability. And since you've, uh, you've decided to be in church on a hot summer Sunday morning, there's a pretty good chance that at some point along the way, at some point in your story, you've had some kind of encounter with God. Chances are it didn't involve any angels appearing in the sky or even at the end of your bed in the middle of the night. Maybe it was as simple as really looking at the stars one night and contemplating, really? Am I really here by chance? Is there really nothing more to it? Did this just happen? Is there no designer? And philosophers try to handle this and world religions handle this, and most of us have, but most of us have some kind of evidence some kind of encounter with God. And you can look at creation and you spend time in nature or you hold a newborn or you look into the night sky and you conclude there's got to be something beyond this. And you might say, and maybe you've got skeptical, unbelieving friends who might say, well, I don't know what's beyond it. I have no idea, but there's got to be something. And when Jesus came to the religious people and he said, I'll show you what's beyond it. I think a lot of Christians, we tend, we tend to think that when Jesus came, he came bringing judgment. And we'd like to think that because that would justify our own judgmental attitudes. You know, we're just trying, you know, what would Jesus do? Oh, he'd judge, so I'm all good with that. Uh, I don't think he came bringing judgment. I know he didn't. There are, the reason a lot of people keep their distance from God is because they're afraid of his judgment. But I want to suggest to you and to your skeptical, unbelieving friends and family and co-workers that the invitation that God is extending to you and to them and to all of us through his son, Jesus, is not an invitation to judgment. I don't, I don't know what you think about God. I don't know. Maybe you think he's grouchy, he's cruel, he's mean, he's all-knowing, whatever, but he's weird too. I don't get it. You know, I don't know. God's invitation isn't an invitation into judgment. His invitation is from judgment into love. That's his invitation to you. And when Jesus met those religious leaders who rejected him, he didn't, he didn't command them to obey God. He was inviting them to love God. And the reason he was inviting them to love God is that he was saying, I have something for you because we've all felt the need for love. We're created that way, whether you're a Christian or not. One of the big quests of human, experience, of human existence is to find love. And you're hoping to find it in Mr. Right, and you're hoping to find it in your next girlfriend, you're hoping to find it in your family, you're hoping to find it among friends, and you're hoping to find it in a church family, and you're hoping to find it in those friendships. And Jesus would just suggest that the reason you're constantly in pursuit, constantly looking for love, is because you were created in the image of God, and God is love, and God is relationship, and that's why we do that. And God loves you, and he loves me and he loves us and he loves us more perfectly than anybody ever will god loves you more perfectly than your spouse has the ability to he loves you more perfectly than your parents ever will he loves you listen this is crazy talk but he loves you more perfectly than your dog ever will i know that's i mean that's he just loves you and so when jesus stands there and he's inviting them into a relationship with him and they reject him They're walking away from love. And in this encounter with Jesus, he introduces a cause and effect that, all right, if you've seen me and you've heard me and you reject me, there are consequences. We'll come back to that in a couple minutes. So he continues this, and this is verse uh, 24 of, uh, we're we're in John. Um, He says, if I hadn't done such miraculous signs among them that no one else could do, they would not be guilty. But as it is, they've seen everything I did, yet they still hate me and my father. So what's Jesus getting at? A couple things. One of the things Jesus is saying is that love has consequences. Some of you have loved somebody who hasn't loved you back. Some of you have been in marriages, or maybe you're there right now, where you love your spouse, but he or she doesn't love you back, and it hurts. Maybe that's a little bit like your relationship with your heavenly father. He loves you. Jesus made that very clear. And maybe hell isn't so much God's decision to live without you. Maybe it's your decision to live without him. In the same way that you can live this life without God, 
what if that continues into eternity? Think about that. Let me give you three truths about God's judgment, because we think how we think judgment. So let me give you three truths about God's judgment. Number one, God judges based on what we know, not on what we don't know. And I know that can take us way down this path that kind of steers us into this weird place, but I'm just going on what Jesus said in this passage. God judges based on what we know, not on what we don't know. That's what Jesus said in John 15. Now, our human laws don't work that way. You know, it's like, officer, I didn't know that the speed limit was only 35. That doesn't usually help, doesn't usually matter. And, and, but Scripture, so I've heard anyway, but Scripture seems to suggest that God judges differently. He doesn't judge based on what we don't know. He judges based on what we know, which actually seems kind of fair to me. Second thing about God's judgment, this is so important. Number two, God's judgment is perfect. God's judgment is perfect. And number three, yours is not. I've met a few people and I've known a few church people. And I can be especially hard on church people because I'm like, I'm in, you know, I'm like king of the church people. I was born in the church nursery, you know that. And they're like, but I've known a few church people and they're like, yep, this person's going to heaven and this one's not. And this person, I shouldn't point. And this person's going to heaven (laughs) and this one's not. (laughs) That was awkward, sorry. And I'm like, really? You get to make that assessment? You can make that assessment? That... Wow, that's impressive, because I can't do that. The Bible says I can't, and I shouldn't. So when you think about hell, don't think about individuals that you know, because your judgment is off. It's skewed. It's not perfect. and You are not God. God's judgment is perfect. There's a sense in which, and, and as much, even as much as I try to understand this, and this is why the issue of hell is, is such an emotional and, and unsatisfying subject, but as much as I try to understand it because of my limited faculties and the fact that I live within the constraints of space and time, and I'm not really fully able to understand the justice of heaven and hell, I can come up with my own ideas of what that means, you know, eternal fellowship with God, our creator, or eternal separation from him, whichever, but I think my ability to understand it's pretty limited. But Jesus made this part clear. He said, if you confess me as Lord and Savior, you may enter into my kingdom, and that decision echoes into eternity. And he seemed to make it clear that if you reject me, that decision will also echo into eternity. But I don't think I'm in a position to say, well, this person accepted him, and this person rejected him, and this person said they accepted, but I don't think they really meant it, and I look at the things that they do in their life, and I don't think, you know, too bad for them. But I, I might make some kind of assessment of where they stand before God, but it's not my place to judge that because God's judgment is perfect and mine is not. So if you ever find yourself trying to play, as you, as you wrestle with the idea of hell, if you ever find yourself trying to play this who's in, who's not game, you should just stop because it's not helpful. So it brings us back to the big idea. What if hell is your decision to live without God? What if the decisions we make in this life, what if they echo into eternity? And for some of us, that might be a troubling concept because some people have the idea that the laws of cause and effect uh, will be suspended in eternity. Well, here's a challenge for you. Why should that be true? Because think about your life so far. The laws of cause and effect are in full operation. Some days I wish they weren't, but one of the truths of life when it comes to cause and effect is simply this, that just because you don't like something doesn't mean it isn't true. Right? Right? Have you found this to be true? There are lots of things I don't like that are still true. I don't like the fact that when I eat a double bacon cheeseburger, I end what? End up weighing more and being less healthy. There's a voice inside me that says, you can eat this bacon cheeseburger and not gain weight this time. You have the same voice inside you, apparently. But it's not true, is it? 
I don't like the fact that if I consistently drive 15 miles over the speed limit in certain places in Ellsworth, I might very well get a speeding ticket and a hefty fine. I don't like that because I would just like for everyone to get out of my way so I can get where I need to be quickly. Just because I don't like the way the law works doesn't mean it isn't true. I don't like the fact that making mistakes relationally Saying things I shouldn't say, saying them in a way I shouldn't say them, results in tension in my relationships. I think that's dumb. <laughs> I'm not saying you're dumb. I'm just saying the idea is dumb. You may be dumb. That's a different topic. I don't think... See, I just did it. So I don't think it should work that way. If I just offended you because I called you dumb, I don't think you should be offended at that. And I'm not... I, I know. I'm... I'm I, what? I'm, this is true, I am. Um, but I'm not the only one. You have moments and you have words and you have attitudes that you wish you could take back, right? The law of cause and effect is at work in this world. There's no escaping that. So why in the world do we think it should be suspended in the next? Well, I just don't think it'll matter. Well, that's great, but you're kind of rolling the dice. The Bible indicates that God will honor the choices that we make about him into eternity. The other thing we struggle with on this topic, this question, is something that we talked about last time. It's the whole objective versus subjective thing. I'm not a big fan of the concept of hell. I'm not a fan. If you are, then you are sick. But if, I don't think God's even a big fan of the idea. If I wrote the Bible, I would not have included hell as a truth. I would have included it as an empty threat. Just like, you know, you do when you're screaming at your kids. That kind of deal. I would, have, I would have left that alone for some other world religion to handle. We made Christianity a lot more attractive, uh, which is probably why no one asked me to write a book of the Bible. Um, but last time I checked, you didn't write the Bible either. We said a couple weeks ago that the Christian faith is both objective and subjective. There's objective, which is the intellectual, rational, logical part of it. Love the Lord with all your mind. And then there's the subjective side, the relational love, Heavenly Father part of it, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul. My guess is that your objections to hell are almost entirely subjective. You just don't like the idea of hell. And some of you might be like, well, actually, it's more like I'm afraid of it. I just... Who isn't? But I don't think the... The fear of hell is enough to keep you out of it. Oh, guilt is a short-term motivator. Some of your parents parented by guilt. How long did that last? Well, it was effective for a while, but not long-term, because when you left home, you realized, I can do whatever I want. Who knew? You know? I can do whatever I want with whomever I want whenever I want to. I had no idea. This is awesome. And I think if you're like, okay, I'm going to be a Christian because I don't want to go to hell. I don't think that lasts very long. Fear of hell is not enough to keep you out of it. Your objections to hell are mostly subjective, not objective. The fact that you don't like it doesn't mean it isn't true. Some people, most people, maybe you, I don't know, pick and choose parts of the Bible that we like. So probably like, hell's like probably an Old Testament concept that Jesus did away with, right? Please? Jesus came along and he's all like love and grace and peace, you know, and don't sin anymore and give me a side hug. (laughs) We have this weird twisted idea of who Jesus was because the truth is nobody taught more about hell than Jesus did. The Old Testament doesn't say much about hell at all. The Apostle Paul mentions it quite a bit, but doesn't go into a lot of detail. He doesn't really teach us a lot about it. You know who hands down taught the most about hell more than anybody else was Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that the reason Jesus taught about hell more than anybody else is that his teaching was motivated by love. What if Jesus spent so much time talking about hell because he loves you and he knows that there's more to eternity than we tend to think? And he's saying, I'm telling you this because I love you. 
and, and I've provided the way for you to be on the right side of eternity, the side that you want to be on, but your decisions here matter, and your choices here matter, and your decisions about what you do with me here matter. And as soon as you start to say, well, that's guilt, that's fear, that's manipulation. No, 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 no. It's love. God's not a concept. God's not a cosmic force. He's a person. He's a living being, and he created you, and he loves you, and he redeemed you, and Jesus to bring you back. Before we look at this other passage of Scripture, you just need to know this, that knowing the truth has saved you more than a few times. Knowing that if you keep speeding, you could end up in you know, with a bad driving record and a, and a bunch of tickets and that, you know, it's going to cost you, has probably saved you. Knowing that if you keep spending, you're going to get into financial, you're just going to be buried financially, has probably saved you. Knowing that if you keep making certain choices at work, your job could be on the line, and which has a huge trickle down, and it maybe has, that truth has saved you from losing your job. Knowing that you, if, if you keep treating your spouse a certain way with disrespect, your marriage could get really bad. Maybe that saved you from destroying your marriage. Knowing that if you spend time with a certain group of friends that eventually over time they might influence you and take you down a path you don't want to go and you start to adopt their values and their worldview, knowing that has saved you from destructive relationships and has saved your integrity. Knowing the truth has saved you more than a few times. And maybe Jesus is saying a lot about the subject about hell because he loves you, because he knows that there's more to this than we realize. And if, and if you're like, well, I wish God would just say it, I, maybe he did. There's a great story that helps us see this. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, uh, let's open to Luke chapter 16. We're going to read a parable. This is a fictional story, okay? Parables are fictional stories. They didn't actually happen. It's a story Jesus made up to make a point. So we're not to draw a lot of theology from a, from a parable, okay? But there's truth to be drawn from parables that tell us a lot about what, how God is and how God operates and what he's like. So we're going to read this parable. Um, and Jesus used parables all the time, and sometimes the point was really obvious, and other times it really needed some explanation. Sometimes he gave it, and sometimes he didn't. This is Luke chapter 16. I'm going to start at verse 19. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. During Jesus' lifetime, only the mega-rich could own purple. You're thinking, purple? Really? Um, That's what it signified. You were mega-rich. This guy is driving a Bentley. He's got a home in Seal Harbor, and he's got one in Vail, and he's got, one in, he's got a condo in Manhattan. He just flew in just the, for the weekend on his G5, you know. He is mega rich. He's kind of like this guy kind of rich. He's kind of like this. I'm really rich, really rich, really rich, really, 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 really rich. Yeah, kind of like that. And uh, I just heard that a couple weeks ago, and I'm like, I'm going to find a way to use that in a sermon. Um, without commentary, verse 20. At his gate, so he lived in a gated community, at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores, extreme wealth, extreme poverty. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And his soul went to the place of the dead. And there in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. Verse 24. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. You like the story? It's a, this is such a great story. I remember it when I was a kid and flannel, a flannel graph was awesome on this story. <laughs> Never heard the story in Sunday school. Maybe Jesus is sharing it with us because he loves us. Maybe because hell in some form is real. Maybe people really go there. Maybe that's Jesus' point. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. Sidebar. Are the flames of hell literal or metaphorical? There are all kinds of resources to study on this one. I encourage you, if that's your big question, I encourage you to study that one. There are some scholars who would say, absolutely, it's literal. People will burn there forever in a physical state. That's one position. Even a lot of conservative commentators would say it's metaphorical. 
That's not to say that the anguish isn't real. And sometimes we get so hung up on, is hell a literal place? If it is, where is it? Where? When I Google, I go on Google Maps and I Google hell. It takes me someplace in Michigan. But other than that, I have no offense, but you know, that's the name of the town. Are the flames real? I think sometimes we allow ourselves to get distracted with arguments like that to keep us from really addressing the real issue. I, I want to suggest to you that we have all experienced a microcosm, a microcosm of the kind of torment of the mind that Jesus is describing. Because we all have moments we wish we could get back, right? I wish I'd never said yes. I wish I could have that night from my senior year of high school back. I wish I could have the night of that party my freshman year of college back. I wish I could have how I acted on that job back. I wish I could have that relationship back. I wish I could have that moment with my kids back. I wish I had the last year of my father's life back. I wish I had never made those financial decisions. I wish I had taken better care of my body because now I got real issues. I wish I could have that wasted time back. And, And you can't. I've had those moments. You've had those moments. And Jesus is saying to us, what if on the other side there are moments that we can't get back? What if you walked away from love and now you're separated from love forever? What if you said, I don't want God, and God says, that makes me sad because I want you, but okay, that's your decision. So we're like, why why on earth would God be okay with that? That's unpalatable to us. And I know I get that. But there's this relationship between love and freedom. They are inseparable. And you know this is true, especially if you've loved someone and they haven't loved you. There's something about love that is inseparably tied to freedom. God could have created us not free. He could have made us little robots. But robots can't love. Those of you who are parents... um, and you're trying, to, you're trying to do this with your kids. You're trying to teach them how to love. You can't make them love, so you're trying to teach them how to love. Did your parents ever tell you, tell your brother you're sorry? Tell your sister you're sorry? You know, I'm sorry. No, tell them, mean it. <laughs> I'm sorry? You know, I don't... <laughs> you're 12, and you've mouthed off to your mother, and your dad says, now tell your mother you love her. Love you, Mom. <laughs> That's not love, and you know it's not love. But when your kids look you in the eye, and they say, I love you, Dad. I love you, Mom. There's something immeasurable and invaluable about that. Why is that? Because it's freedom. They chose that. Now, if we we're doing a whole series on hell and heaven and eternity, number one, uh, I'd be in such a dark place that I don't think I'd be any fun to be around, that's for sure. But um, we could spend a week on freedom and free will and love. And I don't mean on Sunday, I mean a whole week. Like, it'd be a seven-day-long sermon talking about freedom and free will and God's love. We could talk about the mystery of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, actually a free association between one person in three, and love and freedom, you know, in the context of the Godhead, and he created us free as an image of him because that's the only way love operates. Oh, my goodness. Bottom line is you can hate people or you can love people. It's your choice. You can wound people or you can help bring healing to people. That's your choice. And when someone you love comes to you and says, I don't love you anymore, you can't change that. You can't force the issue. Maybe you can change yourself. Maybe you conduct yourself in such a way that you, it makes you more lovable that no one could resist you. But you can't change the other person's heart. You know that's true. And what if it's that way in our human relationships because it's that way in eternity? Maybe it's, maybe it's that way in our human relationships because that's the way it works with God. In the same way that there are consequences in this life, what if there are consequences in eternity? And if you hear fear there, 
And if you hear guilt, you know, and you're like, oh, did you just turn the heat up in here and put the pictures of flames on the screen? What's going on? <laughs> let's, let's get that filter out of our heads, okay? Let's replace fear and guilt with love. Let's replace punishment and judgment with love. Your heavenly, fa- your heavenly Father wants a relationship with you because He loves you. And He loved us long before we loved Him. And He sent Jesus to forgive you. And something is broken in this relationship because when we exercise our freedom in the opposite direction, it hurts people and it hurts us and it destroys our relationships. It kind of explains life. I think even the question of good and evil and suffering and all that, we're going to talk about that in a few weeks, it all comes back to freedom. And I just think your Heavenly Father is pleading with you as He pleads with your unbelieving friends and family and co-workers, would you in this life, would you exercise your freedom in my direction? Oh, and He judges fairly. Jesus said He grades based on what you know, so trust Him with that. Let's go back to the parable. Luke 16, verse 25. But Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted. Remember, you had, pur- you, you had purple clothes. And Lazarus had nothing. Sat outside your gate, body covered in sores, and dogs licked his sores. He had nothing. So now he's here being comforted, and you're in anguish. Besides, th- this is the line that haunts me. There is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. I don't like that picture. But just because I don't like it doesn't mean it isn't true. Verse 27. The rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. (laughs) Whoa. Verse 30, the rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone's sent to them from the dead, they'll repent of their sins and turn to God. So, okay, if somebody returns from the dead and tells them, they'll repent, they'll believe, and they'll be saved. Verse 31, but Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. And these are the words of Jesus. And someone did rise from the dead. And his name is Jesus, and so I know that there's a Father who loves me. In the same way that I know my choices have implications in this life, because they do. We have a name for people who think there are no consequences to their decisions, that there are no consequences to their actions. We call them fools. And that's not a derogatory term. That's kind of, if you think there's no cause and effect, there are no consequences to your positive or negative decisions, you are a fool. In the same way that I know that my choices have implications in this life, what if that continues into eternity? And what if Jesus warned us about hell over and over again because he loves us? Not because he wants us to feel guilty. Not because he wants us to feel like we'll never measure up. Not because he wants to scare us out of hell. But simply because he loves us and he wants a relationship with us and he wants to spend eternity with us. So what if hell is your decision to live without God, not God's decision to live without you? What if no one ends up in hell except those who chose to be there by excluding God from their lives? In Jesus' story, he says, right now there's, a, there's this chasm. And, and right now you might be thinking, well, you know, that's not so bad. I can live without God. I mean, if, if life with God is anything like suffering through this church service and listening to you for 45 minutes, I, I can probably do without that, you know. Here's the thing. The Bible says that God sends his reign on the just and the unjust today. We call that common grace. In, in theology, we call that common grace. Everybody gets that. We get to experience love today, whether you're a Christian or not. You can know what love is. You get to experience the good things in life today, just like the guy in Jesus' story who wore purple. It's like a credit card with a deferred payment, you know, Buy today, no payments till 2020, and 2020 rolls around and you got no money. And one day, what if you're separated from common grace? What if you're separated from goodness and plenty? What if you're separated from love and all you have is you? 
and I'm, I'm not making this up, and I'm not trying to twist this to fit some predetermined systematic theology so I can fit it in a slot in a shelf somewhere. I'm just trying to interpret what I read. And what Jesus said was important. There are lots of parts of the Bible that I really wrestle to get my, brains around, my brain around. Um, but then I'm like, well, I'm just going to move on. But when Jesus has something to say, I really want to sit there and I just want to meditate on what he has to say. And I want it to sink in. I want to, I want to really be able to grasp it. And I know this is difficult. I know this is hard to reconcile with your set of morals and with your worldview. And I know this is not emotionally satisfying because we tend to operate from a position of moralism. If you do good things, good things happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things happen to you. That's how we tend to operate. A couple questions, and just to wrap this up, and then I'm done. On balance, ask yourself, on balance, do I trust Jesus? In other words, do I trust Jesus more then I don't trust Jesus. That's what I mean by that. Because if you're like, 100%? I don't know. What's he going to ask me to do? But, you know, is it 60-40? Is it 70-30? On balance, do I trust Jesus? Because a lot of people are like, on his teaching? Yeah, good Samaritan. That's a good story. Golden rule? Excellent. Live your life by that. Beatitudes? Eh, It's a stretch, but okay. That's good stuff. I like this. So do you trust him? Then secondly, if you trust him, do you trust him to handle eternity more fairly and more justly than you would? Because I don't know about you, but I think I need to trust him with that. Do I trust him to be more just in eternity than I would be? I, I'm just going to have to trust him with that because I'm not God and I'm not holy and I don't even fully understand what it is to be fair and just. So, what's keeping you from embracing an eternity filled with the love of God? This love of God that's found in Jesus. Or what's keeping the people that you, if, that's where you, if you're already there and that's, you have this ongoing, living, vibrant relationship with Jesus, let me ask you this, what's keeping the people that you love and care about from embracing an eternity filled with the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ? What's keeping us from helping our friends embrace the love of God that's found in Jesus? They may not be running from it now. Oh, you can't. You can run now. You, but what if that running stops one day? And what if Jesus says, it can stop, not because you're guilty, not because he, you know, he wants you to be afraid, but because he loves you. And in the same way that, that your consequences play out in this life, you can't escape them. What if the consequences about your decision, about what to do with Jesus Christ, what if it plays out into eternity? So please, please hear me on this. This isn't about guilt. This isn't about fear. This is not about you are, you're not going to make it. Too bad. This is not about you can't be good enough. This is not, look how far, far this is. This is about a love relationship with your heavenly father. What if you were to embrace the love of God that is found in Jesus? And what if you were to be that instrument to help your friends embrace the love of God that's found in Jesus? Let's pray together. I'm going to ask the band and the worship team to come to the stage while we pray, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being a God that is love. Thank you that this isn't about judgment. It's not about fear. It's not about guilt. That you loved us when we didn't love you. And that you've warned us, not because you're cruel, but because you're kind. Uh, We can't understand. We can't fully understand why things work the way they do. those times when I think I'm beginning to understand your holiness and your justice and what fairness looks like, then I realize my understanding falls short. Heavenly Father, if there's someone here today who's running from your embrace and they want the running to stop, may they find themselves in your loving embrace today. I just want to talk to you for a second while we're quiet.
I wonder if you ever expressed to your Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that Jesus died for my sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, that he lives today. I want to embrace him as my Savior. You ever had that moment in time? I know you have questions. We all have questions. And your questions are so sophisticated, I'll never be able to answer them with any kind of satisfaction for you. But the real issue is, what have you done with the gospel? What have you done with the truth that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead? I just want to encourage you, if there's never been a moment in your life that you've embraced that personally, I just want to give you that moment today. Today's a perfect day. This is the message that brings us together. I don't want this to be driven by fear or by guilt. But if during the message there was something that clicked in you, that dawned on you that somehow all the other questions kind of filtered away and there's just this, just this one big thing in front of you and you think, you know what, I think I believe this. I don't know what to do with the other questions I have. I'll deal with that later, but I believe this. Then perhaps this is a day for you to embrace this message and to be restored into relationship with your Heavenly Father. That's His dream for you. If you find yourself right there, right now, I want to lead you through a prayer. And while I lead you through this prayer, Christians in this room are praying that the Holy Spirit would just work in your life. You change the words, you can say it out loud if you're bold enough. <laughs> you can say it in your heart, you can whisper it, change the word, whatever. But just say something like, Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world and for my sins. I believe he was buried. I believe that he wrote, you raised him from the dead. And I embrace him as my Savior. I trust him to provide forgiveness for my sin. Receive me into your family. I'm thrilled to establish this new relationship with my Heavenly Father. In the name of Jesus. Amen. If you, if you have been prompted to make any kind of a spiritual decision today, one where you can say, this was a moment in time for me. I would encourage you to grab a Connect card there in the seat backs. There's one within arm's length of you probably. Fill out as much information as you're comfortable filling out on that, and there's some blank space there for you to just write about your spiritual decision because we want to come alongside you and walk with you on your journey, and we'll do our best to follow up with you. We won't nag you, and we won't plug you into this and add you to 17 mailing lists. We just want to connect with you. So if you'll just, anytime during the music today, just grab that card, fill it out. Uh, you can leave it on one of the front seats here, or you can uh, put it in my hand or put it in an offering box. Um, we would just love to know um, about that, all right?